years ago uh, at a Promise Keepers event. It was the only Promise Keepers event that I went to. It was a group of men, and uh, it was at Soldier's Field, and uh, it was around race reconciliation. They had uh, been working through what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a husband, how do you keep your promise as a husband, and uh, that was uh, a vital time for that ministry. And I showed up for the event where they were working on race reconciliation. And they had uh, pastors of different races that had come together and talked about their concerns about how in the church, sometimes we don't treat people the same. And sometimes that we can look down on people. And I sat there watching and listening and learning uh, to a large degree. I grew up in Arlington Heights in a home where I didn't see prejudice really. I, that wasn't really allowed in my home. There wasn't jokes that, if there was going to be a joke, it was going to be a joke about Norwegians, uh, which I am. Um, and, uh, but there wasn't jokes that were aimed, oh, my, okay, maybe the Swedes took a few jokes. Uh, but I knew we were getting them back from the Swedes at the same time. So that was the extent of what I would call prejudice that I saw. And I'm listening to what people have experienced, and I've had a really, uh, it was eye-opening for me. I uh, it went on for a number of talks, and I'm listening, and it was in that particular, if anybody was at that event, it was like 98 degrees, and we were all hot and sweaty, and uh, eventually, uh, they asked us down onto the field to join people of different races and stand with them and worship together, and the expectation of the whole event was that because we have come to Christ, these things should no longer divide us. What divides us is so much smaller than what unites us. That being united in Christ should break through those barriers and break down the walls of division. And that is the expectation of Scripture. Now I'll talk more about that as I get to the end of the sermon, but that's what's happening here in the church in chapter 8 of Acts, that a major wall is being torn down in the church. And this is going to cause some problems for the church. But right here, this significant event, the first of two very significant events for the church, where the words, the promises of Jesus, the charge of Jesus before he ascended in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They are now going to the Samaritans. So look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4, and we're going to look through verse 25. We'll read it as we preach it. We'll do it in each part. So the first uh, verses, verses 4 through 9, I'm going to read first. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city, and there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Christ was proclaimed to outcasts. 
Christ was proclaimed to people that were uh, looked down upon. So strongly were they looked down upon that in the Gospel of John, Jesus declared, the woman at the well said, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. The expectation is that you wouldn't talk to a Samaritan when you traveled through Samaria. Samaria was located between Galilee and, and Judea, and the Galileans, to travel to Jerusalem, had the choice of traveling through Samaria or going completely around it, and some would add miles to their walk by going around because they didn't even want to set foot in Samaria. And here, in this passage, it says, these who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip is going into this foreign territory where he is maybe hated and maybe grew up in a home that hated them. It begins in verse 4 saying now that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What is this scattering? Well, Stephen has just been executed and persecution has been, has been going up. It's been ramping up in Jerusalem. The church has primarily to this point been in Jerusalem. They've been preaching on the Temple Mount. They don't have a church building like we do. They were up on the Temple Mount gathering together as Christians and preaching and, lit and doing it in front of the people that hatred was growing between those in Jerusalem and the Christians. The leadership. And it culminated in Stephen's sacrifice and now this oppression happens. Verse 3, Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They left Jerusalem and continued to preach the word. God sovereignly used persecution to drive out this baby church into the communities around it. And tradition would tell us that they went all directions. They went down to northern Africa. They went to the east and the orient. They went, it traveled throughout the communities. They were just excited to preach Christ. And it's just starting, is that how we would respond? If we lost our home because we preached Christ, if we lost our business, if we lost the place that our family grew up, and we lost our connections to the community that we love, would we still promote Christ? And I would argue you would if you had been radically changed by Christ. If you had seen the life of Christ. If you had spent three years watching Jesus persecuted and continue to love. This baby church is scattered by God's plan and they continue to preach the word. They went about preaching the word. Philip went down to Samaria. Now, we wouldn't usually say it this way. It would be like saying we went down to Minnesota. Uh, it's like going north, but from a Jewish perspective, anytime you left Jerusalem was going down. Anytime you left the temple. And it wasn't the tallest area in, in the world. It wasn't the tallest area even in their community. But from their expectation, when they talk about going down, it's moving away from Jerusalem. So they're going down to Samaria that's where Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Let's talk about Samaritans for a minute. Why was there so much hatred? The Samaritans came from the tribes that rejected Solomon 
and his son. They were the northern tribes. They were the ten tribes in the north that worshipped God in a separate place than Jerusalem. David, the city of David, is Jerusalem, and he brought the ark to the uh, to that land, and, and eventually Solomon built a temple there, and from the conservative Jewish perspective of the two tribes that are in the south, Jerusalem holds the only temple, and it's the only place that you can really make sacrifices to God. In the north, they rejected the oppression of Solomon, and in 722 B.C., when Solomon's reign ended, they said, we're done with you. And this break between the Samaritans and the, north, the south, Judea, this break has lasted for centuries. Do we have any divisions today that have lasted for centuries? That have a history? They believed that Eli's leadership was flawed. In my Bible study, we're going through... Um, we're going through 1 Samuel right now. And Eli was a priest who led in a way that he didn't build trust, but he also raised Samuel. And Samuel anointed Saul and he anointed David. From a Samaritan perspective, they don't trust that anointing. They don't believe that David was the king. They don't believe the promises that came to David. They don't trust that. They were interpopulated by Assyria. In 2 Chronicles 34.9, we see that the Assyrians, when they, over, when they took over the northern kingdom, their plan was to take part of their people away and put in part of their own people. So Assyrians intermarried with these Jews. And for a, from a Jewish perspective, they joined their, they syncretized their faiths so that their Jewish faith was joined with the Assyrian faith and it was polluted from a Jewish perspective. And that's worse than being Assyrian from a Jewish perspective because they actually felt like they were using Yahweh's name and they were using it all wrong. They were more hated than people that were not Jewish at all. By the way, the hate went both directions. Many wars and mistrust. I could tell you about the wars. About how they fought against each other and how they didn't stand with each other. These are now distant cousins who have a long time hatred for each other. In Jesus' time, they both excluded the other from worship. Neither was welcome in their houses of worship. The Samaritans were not welcome in Jerusalem. And the Jews were not accepted in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. Jesus was shunned by Samaritans in Luke 9, 51, 55. And Jesus was expected to shun the Samaritans in John 4, 9. The Samaritan woman said, why are you even talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. We're talking about division and hatred. What I dealt with in Soldier's Field was nothing like this. This is awful. The Samaritans' belief systems, they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and saw themselves as the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
They believed that Mount Gerizim is the only place to offer sacrifices. They believed it was the mountain where Abel offered his sacrifice. Genesis 4.4, where Noah offered his sacrifice. Genesis 8.20, they believed that Abraham uh, offered his 10% to Melchizedek on Mount Gerizim. Genesis 14.18, and they believed that Isaac's intended sacrifice by Abraham in Genesis 22 took place on that mountain. That was their narrative. They held to the first five books of the, books of the Bible, and they thought Moses was the most high of them all, and their Messiah was the descendant of, was the one promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. They did believe a Messiah was coming. They just didn't believe it was going to be the descendant of David. Were the Samaritans wrong? They were. Jesus affirmed that he would come from the lineage of David and the promise made to David was true. They were wrong about a lot of what they believed. I don't know that I've ever experienced hatred the way that's described between the Samaritans and the Jews. These people lived close to each other, but they hated each other. Jesus' ministry, he goes and preaches to the Samaritans, and in one of the most crazy moments, you see more people come to Christ in Samaria than in any other town. The whole town believes in Jesus. Town of Sychar, in John chapter 4. Read the story. It's crazy. And the disciples are sitting there like, I don't know what to do. And Jesus says, behold the harvest. Why would Jesus reach out to these Samaritans who don't even believe what he believes about the Old Testament, what he knows to be true about the Old Testament? This is one of the primary things that I want you to get from this sermon is that whatever differences divide us, they are minuscule compared to what unites us in Christ. Whatever would divide us, and get your list together. I hate them because. What God could have hated us for is so much farther. How far Christ had to descend to love us is minuscule by comparison whatever we'll have to span to love the person we hate or the people group that we struggle with. In Christ, we should be so amazed that he would choose us that including somebody else shouldn't be a problem. And there seems to be no problem for Philip here. He's so changed by Christ and so filled with the Spirit that when he goes through this persecution and he leaves Jerusalem, he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. He goes on and cares for them just like he cares for everybody else, knowing that Christ loves them just like he loved Philip. If Christ loves me, then surely he loves others as well. And however far Christ had to go to love me is, should make it so that all of the barriers that would keep me from loving somebody else would be torn down. How thankful are we that Christ included us? This would be like going to an orphanage, being part of an orphanage, and parents picking us. And now we've spent a year not being orphans in that home 
and our parents decide to go back to an orphanage and we're like, ah, they're not good enough for us. We can't have orphans in this home. We're chosen. Would we despise the people that God loves? Well, we're going to see that this is messy, as all church is. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. All right, this is a very different uh, reception than he got in Jerusalem. For the most part in Jerusalem, there were some that received Christ, 5,000 and 3,000. There was groups of people that came in mass, but most people rejected and most people were angry. The crowds are in one accord are paying attention to what Philip is saying. God has already prepared their hearts. I also want you to know in verse 5 that he's proclaimed to them Christ. We just went through chapter 7 where uh, 53 verses were given to Stephen's sermon. Philip gets one. So, you know, I don't know if Philip's sermon wasn't as good. No, that's not true. The truth is, is that God tells us the things he wants us to know. He wants us to focus on the things he wants us to focus on. I would love to know what Philip preached. How did he contextualize the gospel in this Samaritan community? How did he move them towards Christ when they were so far from believing in a Messiah that Christ was? But all we know is one phrase from one verse. He proclaimed to them Christ. And he also performed signs. And what were those signs? In verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The Spirit of God uses Philip to perform signs. What are signs? Well, we know from the Gospel of John what signs are. Signs are miracles that are performed so that we know that this message that's following is from God. That's what a sign gift is. And the signs that were in the New Testament in John chapter 1 and 2 and, and beyond, turning water to wine was the first sign. And each of those signs are an argument that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's working these signs out and God is using the signs through Philip to say, the gospel is coming to Samaria today. You're being welcomed into the church. What were the signs? The list two. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many. How many of us have seen unclean spirits? How many of us have seen demons? If anybody here is from the mission field, there's a chance that you have. But from my experience, I have not. I've seen one hand that says that he has. Most of us have not seen this. Why? Well, we're going to talk about magic and powers and, and Satan's power and spiritual power in this sermon. And I want to acknowledge that I think that Satan is as hardworking as ever in the United States as he is in any community before and after. I think Satan is still at work keeping people from Christ. What's his strategy? To put us to sleep, I think. I think he's not showing his power in the ways that we would be quick to claim that's spiritual power. 
I think he wants us to think that he's not at work anymore and that we don't need to be afraid and that we don't need to pray against that. But in this land, Satan's tactic was to use spiritual power to keep people from Christ. And what does Stephen do? By the power of the Holy Spirit, these unclean spirits came out with a loud voice. And it came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And I want you to know that many who have been paralyzed and lame have gone on to die in the church and not been healed. These are signs. It doesn't mean that he doesn't heal and that he won't heal today. It means there is a significant movement of the church right now from Jerusalem to Samaria that is being marked by powerful miracles so that they can know that Jesus is doing this. So there was much joy in the city. Verse 9, ending this first point, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So there was this magician, not like we would see in Las Vegas where he's using sleight of hand. His, this magic at this time was using incantations, cutting of yourself and even child sacrifice to call the spiritual darkness to do things and be at work. And that does still go on today, just not that I've seen Simon is doing this practicing of magic in the city and he amazed people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. He's the one who is saying he's great, by the way. So this is another person that is being preached to, a flawed, messed up enemy of the cross, actually. Somebody who would keep people from the cross and he's being preached to as well, right alongside everybody else. Christ was proclaimed to outcasts. Before we leave this first point, I have to ask you, who do you not want to see saved? Who do you not want to be in your church? Who can you not unite with? And at the same time, who's thankful that Jesus chose them? Careful about putting those on the same plate. Christ was proclaimed to outcasts. Christ was received by outcasts. And I would argue this is problematic. <laughs> Verses 10 through 17. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. We're talking about Simon. So the culture here is for them to trust this guy who was called great, they paid attention to him because they were amazed by his magical powers, these incantations that would call spirits of darkness into power. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 12 begins with but. In opposition to what they had believed about Simon, they are now choosing something else. This isn't a joining of what Simon believed and what Philip believes. It's but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God 
and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The people came to Christ and left what they had been doing, left what they had been choosing. They left their story that Moses was the last great prophet and that the first five books of the Bible are all that we trust. They are now switching teams because of Christ, recognizing him as the Messiah, as the promised child of David. That the whole Old Testament was the story. Now, Jesus was asked by the woman at the well, in what mountain do we worship? Do we worship in this mountain or in the one that the Jews say in Jerusalem? And he says, don't worry about it. Neither in this mountain nor in that mountain. The day is coming when you will worship God wherever you are. The church is something new. It is something fulfilled. We no longer need the temple and the, and the altar. And the Samaritans will be able to worship God in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem or wherever they're planted because of Christ. It changes everything. And they have chosen to believe the story. They have chosen to believe the miracles. And they were saved. They were baptized. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon becomes a believer and is baptized. This is significant because Simon is still a mess. Simon is being pointed out because we're seeing the beginning of the problems of having the Samaritans become part of the church. Now, the problems of having the Samaritans become part of the church are so much smaller than a God who doesn't love Samaritans. Because we have a God who doesn't love Samaritans. What means the love of us? He loves people. He loves us all. So Simon is chosen, he's baptized, he believes. And this radical change is beginning and the church is planted. Can you imagine them having to pick apostles or who's going to preach when Philip leaves? Can you imagine, I mean, uh, elders for the church? Can you imagine them picking who's going to lead children's ministry? I mean, they're all baby Christians, all of them. All of them have only been reading the first five books of the Bible and it's been syncretized with Assyrian faith. It's a mess. They believe in magic at this point. I have been to Zambia and I have seen people radically changed. A man who goes from beating his wife and not working to within two years leading worship and one year later becoming the preaching pastor. The Holy Spirit radically changes people's lives. And I think we think too small about that radical change. I think we think we're defined by the family that we came from, by the story that we're living. We are not defined by those things. We are not defined by coming from a family that was awful. God, our Father, reclaims our understanding of Father and knits us into a family that's eternal. It's not a problem for God that, it's no more a problem for God that Samaritans are being saved than Jews or you and me. Simon believed and was baptized. In verses 14 through 16, this is an interesting thing about narrative in the Bible. And again, I have said it maybe two or three times so far in my sermons on Acts. We do not take theology or practice. We don't take 
orthodoxy or orthopraxy from narrative. Narrative is telling a story. We don't decide how we're going to live based solely on narrative. And what's about to happen in this narrative is unique. And I'll do my best to explain it. Verse 14, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, they had not yet, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now when they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, I know and have been taught by another group of Christians that there needs to be a second movement in your life. You believe, you're baptized, and then later on you receive the Holy Spirit. There is nothing in the scriptures that affirms that. So what's going on here? Three times in the narrative of Acts, the Spirit comes after faith. They believe, they're baptized, and then the Spirit. What is going on? Why is this happening? Well, these apostles are working together as one, and they're seeing this church grow, and you have to remember this is brand new for them. And the Spirit of God is allowing the church to catch up from my perspective. This movement of the Holy Spirit being held is that not only is Philip affirming that these are believers and they are part of the church, but they are being welcomed in by John and by Peter. And this moment is set up so that it's the focus of what's happening here in Samaria. What he's saying is, I know you guys are all shocked. And if you thought that they hated you in Jerusalem, there's a good chance they're going to hate you even more. But you're going to welcome Samaritans as equals. And this is a 700-year-old rejection that I'm asking you to do away with. And the Spirit, I think, is held off the same way the signs are given in a way so that all will know this is God saying, I'm doing this. And God brings Peter and John and allows them to be witnesses and to affirm this is now the church. And who is going to say to Peter and to John and to Andrew who walked with Jesus throughout their whole career, throughout Jesus' whole ministry, now they have the affirmation of two or three witnesses saying this radical change is happening. So they prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is given and that's my conjecture. If the scriptures don't tell us that's what God was doing, then I don't, uh, don't want to suggest that I know for sure. But I will tell you that in Acts 16, 11 through 15, Acts 16, 25 through 34, you see the jailer, you see Lydia receive Christ and receive the Holy Spirit at the same time. And I find no place in the epistles that claim that some of you are walking around with the Holy Spirit but believing. So I don't think that there's a whole big group of people in the church that don't have the Holy Spirit. You are saved and filled as a down payment of the promise of your salvation. I think this was a big enough wound that God was saying, I want this fixed. I want the church to not divide over this. Boy, we've had a lot to divide over in the last two years. 
Is it bigger than what Christ did for us? Christ was proclaimed to outcasts. Christ, Christ was received by outcasts. Christ was correcting his child. Look at verses 18 through 25. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall, in, in the gall of bitterness and, bound of iniqu- and, a, and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come to, upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Simon is saved, he's baptized, and he's still a mess. Is that true for any of us? Is that still our story? Are we all being sanctified? Are we all overcoming sin? Are we surprised that Simon is dealing with this? So why so harsh? Why such a harsh judgment? Why didn't he pull him aside and put his arm around him and say, you know, hey, we don't do it that way in the church. You can't buy the power of the Holy Spirit and I know you had power before, but you're not going to necessarily get power in the church and absolutely you're going to lose the title that you're great. If you want to be part of the church, you're going to have to serve. And we could have had that conversation. Why is this such a big deal that Simon not only gets scolded so harshly, but he also gets called out so that I'm preaching on it 2,000 years ago and it gets into scriptures? Why is this such a big deal? Because the church is not like the world. We can act like it. We can pretend it's about making money. We can pretend that it's about power and about having a position. And we can pretend that the goal of my job in church is to get a position and to hold that position and to have prominence in the church. And what does prominence in the church look like? Well, that when I step outside, people you know, applaud or think highly of me. Not in the church. Not with Christ as our Savior. Not the one who so freely gave. Peter could have made money here. Simon is also the name for Peter. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on, I'm, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Simon gives them, offers to give them money. Give me this power so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants prominence. He wants to be one day saved and the next day be in a position where he's got power. Church history would tell us that people have purchased positions in the church. Position of power in a community was to be able to bring the Eucharist. And it went to the highest bidder at times. Why is that wrong? Why is that offensive to God? Why was it offensive to Christ 
that the money changers were out in the court selling sacrifices. You have made my house a marketplace. You've made my family to become just like the community around you and value people based on the world's perspective. How do we value people in the church? We value everyone the same, but if we're going to value someone more, it's the least of these. We're going to fight for the people that people don't get fought. I mean, find, give us your outcasts. That's what Christ did. Give us the ones that no one else wants. Samaritans, we want them. We love them. Orphans, outcasts, this person, this perspective where he's correcting his child is fighting for the health of the church. You cannot do this in the church and not have God be angry because what you're doing is you're valuing some people less. You're saying, I've got money, so that means I'm going to have a higher position in the church than the rest of you. I'm socially adept. That means I'm going to have a higher position. I have my house in order. God delights in using the least of these. If you don't know my story, I, from my perspective, was the least likely from my family to succeed. And from my teacher's perspective and my principal's perspective, I was the least likely in the church, in the school, to be used by God. I had a bill sent home that my parents had to pay for all the things I broke. I was a numbskull. And Jesus loved me and chose me, and sent me. And who would I say God shouldn't choose? Who would I say God should love less than me? This judgment seems harsh, but Simon is basically asking, can I switch this story so that I can purchase. Now, I used to be really popular in the town because I could perform these miracles through, through evil and magic. Now I'd like to be able to do it through God. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Let me give the Holy Spirit as well. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Thought you could obtain the gift of God with your looks. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with your wisdom. You thought you could obtain the gift of God because you're prominent in your community. Cut it out. It's a gift. And we come to the cross as equals. Well, he repents and submits, and it ends with evangelism that goes from town to town. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word in verse 25 of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Peter and John are not saying, okay, we're going to let these ones in, but keep it quiet. We don't want too many Samaritans in the church. Tell them all. Bring them all. That day that I was in Soldier's Field, uh, I think back at and smile a lot. I was sitting behind the stage with my group of friends that I went with. We were all white. 
and we're sitting together and I'm listening to people talk about their pain. And I'm thinking in my head, because I know where this is going, they're going to ask us to repent and they're going to welcome us down onto the soldier's field. And I'm thinking about it. I understand that sin from generation to generation gets passed down and we are responsible for the sins of our fathers and grandfathers the same way Daniel prayed for forgiveness for the sins of his fathers in Daniel 9. So I understand that there is some association of sin, but I'm thinking that my heritage, Norway, we tended at that time when my parents' parents were there, parents, parents, parents were there, that Norwegians were thought of poorly in Scandinavia. They were looked down on. They were kind of beaten up. I don't know if you knew that or not. Swedes held a higher position, those Swedes. <laughs> Quiet, Dr. Norbeck. And I'm sitting there thinking that we weren't here when this slavery thing happened. That my parents also dealt with, I mean, they came from Canada down through, I mean, two generations. I know of no slavery in my past. I know of, I I wasn't allowed to talk like that as a child. And I sat there and thought, all right, this is broken. It's still broken. I see that. And I went down on the field and repented. And I was one of the last ones down on the field. It's 98 degrees. Well, then they invited the African Americans among us to come down and receive and to forgive us. Well, I was by the door, so I think I hugged about 300 sweaty black men that day and received their forgiveness. And then we sang hymns as I'm holding hands. One church. I don't know how to think always about that day. I have some misgivings. I have some thoughts about it. They're not important. What is important is that for Christ, I would do that daily until he returns. Because he did it for me. He set aside all the reasons to not choose me, and he loved me and he chose me. How dare I look at another orphan and say that you're less valuable than me. May God work powerfully in the church and break down all the walls so that all can come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for loving us. Forgive us for the times that we stop being amazed by that. Forgive us for the times that we sometimes qualify ourselves as more savable than others. And would you build your church and may the churches open their doors to everyone so that all may come in. In Jesus' name, amen.